Well, let's turn in your Bible to uh, the book of James. As you guys know, we've been uh, making our way through James, and uh, Pastor David last week uh, closed out James chapter 1, and so we're going to begin James chapter 2 here today. James has talked to us about uh, various kinds of trials that we face in this life and that uh, we Christians are not immune to the trials that everybody else uh, tends to face in life. And he's encouraged us to uh, remember Christ in those trials. Um, we talked about last week um, just what true religion is, <clears throat> looking out for uh, orphans and widows and caring for uh, the vulnerable and, and those who don't have much of an ability to care for themselves. And today, uh, James is going to talk to us about uh, partiality or favoritism uh, within the church. And so as we begin chapter 2, he simply gives us this command in James 2.1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so, there's not a lot of ambiguity here in what James is saying. Some, sometimes the Bible can, can seem like it's ambiguous and we have to do some work to figure out what something means, but James just very clearly says uh, to show no partiality. And so what we can infer from this uh, is that this was a problem in the early church because James felt the need to write a letter to address this partiality or this favoritism that's in the church. And in a moment, we're going to dig into this to figure out what this was all about. But it was so much of a problem that James felt the need uh, to address it. He addresses uh, the people as my brothers or my brothers and my sisters. So he's addressing uh, fellow Christians. So, so not only was this a problem, it was a problem within the local church. And so somehow word had gotten back to James uh, that something was going down in the church that he needed to address. And so we're going we're gonna to come back to some of this here in just a moment, but let, let's jump ahead into verses 2 to 4, and we're going to unpack what the problem is, and then we're going to come back uh, to verse 1 that hopefully will shed some light for us on uh, this particular issue. So James chapter 2, uh, verse 2, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So he gives us this example of what he's talking about. He says, don't show any partiality. And I'm going to give you an example of the type of partiality that's happening within the church. And again, this is not ambiguous. This is not difficult for us to understand. He gives a very straightforward uh, example that two men come into a worship service, maybe much like ours. One man is obviously rich <clears throat> based on the way that he's dressed. Uh, one man is obviously poor based on the way that he's dressed. And the idea that James is getting at here is that the people in the church were making judgments about these people solely based upon their outward appearances. And based upon their outward appearances, they give honor to the rich man. And they tell the poor man, you, you sit over here, right? So again, not, not ambiguous. But, but here's what's interesting. James draws a pretty hard line here when he says that you have become judges with evil thoughts. So, so he's, not, he's not just bringing up an issue here that, that's a small problem. He's not just saying, hey guys, don't, don't be partial, don't show favoritism. He, he draws a hard line and says, when you do this, th this is evil. It's an evil thing. 
And so where my mind goes is I wonder like, okay, why, why is he making such a big deal of this? Maybe there, there needs to be, uh, maybe it is kind of a big deal that, that maybe we shouldn't be like this in the church, but, but why does he just call it outright evil? He talks about making distinctions among yourselves, and we tend to classify people in many ways. Think about our society, think about just even you personally, how you classify people. We, we do this sometimes even unconsciously, maybe a lot unconsciously, but we classify people not only as rich or poor, like in our example here, um, our society classes people as attractive or unattractive. Right? There's actually studies that show uh, attractive people, uh, and it's very subjective, but, but attractive people uh, tend to get promotions in the workplace more often than people that are deemed unattractive, because our society shows favoritism in that way. We classify people as talented or untalented, and the more talent that somebody has, uh, we elevate them, right? Even to the point of, of worshiping our celebrities. We can classify people as intelligent or unintelligent. How many times do you find yourself driving down the road and mumbling under your breath to that person that cut you off? Idiot. I, I've never done that, ever. <laughs> We, we classify people as good or bad, right? We, we look at people, we, like probably if you're like me, like I'm the best person that I know. You're probably the best person that you know. It's just this is our human nature, right? And we look at people that aren't like us and that have maybe different moral standards. And so I'm a good person and so I'm going to measure you according to me, right? I'm, I'm the measuring stick. And, and if you're not like me or if you have some different moral standards, then you're, you're a bad person. If you don't vote the way that I'm going to vote here shortly, you're a bad person, right? This is what we do. We, we bring these distinctions and we classify people. But here's the thing. The Bible doesn't classify people in these ways. Romans chapter 1 tells us that all humanity wrongly worships the creation over and above the creator. That's an indictment of every person. Romans chapter 2 goes on to say that, that as humans, we are inventors of evil, another indictment of humanity. Romans 3 goes on to say that, that we have all sinned and that, that God has this standard and all of us fall woefully short of the standard that God places on us. All of us. So the distinction that the Bible makes, even Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that all of us are on a path that's leading to death. All of humanity, apart from the intervention of Jesus Christ, that we're on a path that ultimately is going to end, not just in physical death, but a spiritual death. The psalmist writes in Psalm 14 that no one seeks God. No one. And so you put all this together, and like there's this scathing indictment against humanity. And the Bible doesn't say, well, there's some good people, there's some bad people, there's some that are attractive or unattractive, intelligent, unintelligent, uh, whatever. The, the Bible makes one distinction of all of humanity, and it's that we're broken. We're broken by our sinfulness, which is inherent to us. Like we're born with a sin nature. And so the distinction that the Bible makes of all of humanity is that we're broken and that we're in desperate need of redemption. This is part of why James is making such a big deal of this, is that when we judge like what's happening here in James chapter 2 on the outward appearances, we're making distinctions that God doesn't make about people. 
Think about your own, your own brokenness. You, you might sit here not thinking of yourself as a broken person, but the Bible would say that you're broken. The Bible would say that I'm broken and that I'm in desperate need of redemption, just like you are. So with that thought in mind, let, let's jump back to verse 1. James exhorts the readers to show no partiality as they hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There's a couple possible ways that, that in the original language this phrase, hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, could be understood. One possible way that it could be understood is do not show prejudice if you have faith. Do not show favoritism or partiality if you have faith in Christ. Another possibility is that he's asking a question. How can you claim to have faith if you show partiality or if you show favoritism towards people? But either way, either of those possibilities, James is making a point here. He's making a point that, that showing partiality or showing favoritism and holding faith in Jesus Christ are mutually exclusive. In other words, that they can't exist together you can't say that I hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and look at those around you and think I'm the best person that I know. You can't do those things at the same time. And if it's true that we're all broken, if it's true that the distinction that the Bible makes of all of humanity is that we're all broken and that we're all in desperate need of redemption, if that's true of me and that's true of you, right, how can we look at each other and make distinctions that the Bible doesn't make? How can I look at you and say, I'm better than you? How can I look at the rich man in this example and say, I'm going to favor that person over the poor man? If it's true that we're all broken, that we all have this in common, that we all have a brokenness in common, we all have a common need to be redeemed. James is assuming something here, and he's assuming the truth of the gospel. James doesn't always come out explicitly and say, here's how the gospel applies to something, but, but he's assuming in his writing the truth of the gospel. He's assuming, in this case, our common brokenness and our common need for redemption, and that's why he's making a big deal of this partiality that's happening here in the passage. So you can't hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be a prejudiced person. He talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What he's saying here is that Jesus Christ is the exalted one. The only one worthy of exaltation. He's worthy of exaltation because he can redeem us in our broken state. God, God is worthy of all glory. We talk about the glory of God. We talk about glorifying God in our behavior, in our, in our practices, those kinds of things. But let's understand something. God is all glorious, and you and I don't do anything to add to or detract from His glory, okay? If I have a bad week where I just give in to my temptations, right? And I get to the end of the week and think, man, I really blew it this week. But that doesn't take away from the glorious nature of who God is. Conversely, if I have a really good week and I can get to the end of the week and say, man, I did some really great things in the name of the Lord this week, that doesn't add anything to who He is or His glory. God is glorious independent of you and I. And as people who are created in His image, 
right? The, the fancy term for that is the Imago Dei. We're created, as Genesis 1 tells us, in the image and in the likeness of God. We, we reflect God's glory. We're kind of like mirrors in that way, that we reflect God's glory to the world around us. <clears throat> An analogy that I like to use is this. How many of you have ever been to uh, like a carnival or a fair? Um, I'm not a big ride guy. I don't, I don't do roller coasters, things like that. But like I'll go into the house of mirrors. Things, I, I do things like that, kind of more docile things. I don't really need the thrill of like thinking I'm going to die on a roller coaster. So go to a house of mirrors and there's all these mirrors in there and some of them, they give you a big head. Some of them, you know, give you a short body and you're really wide. They, they make you look really funky. At the end of the day, like, those are reflections of you, although they're distorted reflections, right? And so as we think about as we reflect God's glory, we, we reflect a distorted image of who God is because we're not perfect, and because we're broken, and because we're in need of redemption. But James reminds us here that, that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory, that He is glorious, that He's the one that we should exalt. Not, not as we make distinctions among ourselves to say, I'm going to exalt the rich man and not the poor man, that we should exalt Christ and who Christ is because of what Christ has done for us. As broken people in need of redemption, all of humanity is, is equal in that regard. I'm equal to you regardless of how we're classified by our social statuses. It doesn't matter if you have a six-figure income and I have a five-figure income. The playing field is level because I'm a broken sinner in need of redemption that only Christ can provide, and you're a broken sinner in need of redemption that only Christ can provide. Again, with that truth in mind, how can we then look at one another, look across the room, and, and have any distinction of rich, poor, intelligent, unintelligent, good-looking, bad-looking, talented or untalented, whatever it is? The, the Bible blows away these distinctions that we make with one another. Years ago, and maybe some of you have heard me share this before, but years ago, um, <clears throat> I was in a church that had a soup kitchen. And it wasn't often that I would go to the soup kitchen for lunch, but, but occasionally I would maybe drop in and see how things were going. We had a number of guests that would come. They were just always there, right? And so, so you would get to know kind of the regulars, we call them. And there was one particular guy who was a regular, and he, he began coming to our church. And he, he was a, a homeless guy, lived in his vehicle, lived in a tent, um, that kind of a thing. And as I got to know him, I found some things out about him. <clears throat> he had a past that was very unsavory. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was a, a registered sex offender for crimes that he had committed. And it just kind of made my blood boil to think about that. And there was one day where um, I didn't have much going on during lunchtime, and I just kind of felt this urge, hey, I need to go down to the soup kitchen. This, this was kind of not characteristic of me, and I felt this nudge to go to the soup kitchen. I went down there, and I saw this guy in the parking lot as soon as I got out of my vehicle. And he came up and started talking to me about how much he had enjoyed being a part of our fellowship, um, the fact that, that people accepted him. Um, that we would even let him in the door. And he began talking about just some things that God was doing in his life. And I found myself pretty encouraged by this. Like on one hand, I'm just thinking, I can't believe I'm having a conversation with this guy that I'd just rather not be around. But on the other hand, like I was encouraged by what he was sharing with me. And I ended up not going inside for lunch. I just I had that conversation. It, it lasted maybe 10 minutes. And then I decided to get in my vehicle. And, and I didn't get a block down the road um, 
and all of a sudden, all these thoughts come flooding into my mind um, that just made me weep. I had to pull over. Like, I'm, I'm not a crier at all. And I had to pull over because I, I was crying, weeping so profusely, I couldn't even see going down the road. And the thoughts that came flooding into my mind in an instant as I'm thinking of me, and I'm thinking of this guy, and I'm thinking how the world would kind of put us up and say, one of you is a good guy and one of you is a bad guy. Right? One of you is an upstanding citizen, one of you is not. And then I began to think about a truth that I really, I knew in my mind, but in this moment, a truth sunk into my heart in a way that it hadn't sunk into my heart before. And that truth was that, apart from Christ, I'm no different than this guy. The world would say good guy, bad guy, right? But Christ looks at us both and says, broken guy, broken guy, in need of redemption, in need of redemption. And it just hit me. It just hit me in an instant. Like I said, I had to pull over just because I was, I was weeping at this truth. And then as I, as I sat in my vehicle, a few minutes later, this other thought came flooding into my mind. Okay, apart from Christ, broken guy, broken guy, both in need of redemption, but because of Christ, righteousness of God, righteousness of God. Because God has redeemed me in my brokenness, and God has redeemed this other guy in his brokenness. So, so kind of the other side of the coin is that because of who Christ is and because of what Christ has done, we're the same. We're, we're the same on both sides of the coin, broken and, and in need of redemption or righteousness of God because we've been redeemed. And, and again, like this was a truth like I could have articulated to you intellectually, but in this moment, it just hit me in a way that, that sunk into my heart that it had never hit me before. The world would classify us very differently, but, but Christ, both apart from him and because of him, classifies us the same way. Broken sinners in need of redemption and those who have been redeemed. So this is what James is talking about. He goes on in verses 5 to 7, expanding on this, this thought. He says, listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Listen. In other words, pay attention to what I'm about to say. My beloved brothers, my friends, my fellow believers. He's reminding us that God has chosen. We don't choose God. He chooses us, right? And James is reminding us that God has chosen he chose, he redeems, he loves, and it's him who takes those who are poor in the world and makes them rich in faith. And what I don't think James is saying is that the gospel is exclusive, exclusively for those who are literally poor. He's not saying that. He's not saying that the gospel is only for, for poor people, and if you're rich, then you're out of luck, right? But God has a special place in his heart for those who are the poor of this world, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about that God chooses the foolish things of this world over the wise. He chooses the weak things of this world over the strong. And there's a reason that God does that, so that we can look at the things that God does and say only God can do that. Well, only God can, can bring wisdom from a fool or strength from weakness. I can't do that. You can't do that. Only God can do that. 
And so God has chosen, yes, the literal poor of this world, but also the spiritually poor of this world to be rich in faith. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about that, that it's his desire to spend all of eternity pouring out his riches towards us in kindness in all of the age to come. To be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom is something that only God can bestow upon you and I. And he's promised it to those who love him. And we talked about this, I think, the last time I was able to preach that when God makes a promise, like it's a sure thing. When you and I make promises, there's a chance that we're not going to follow through on our promises. You ever made a promise to somebody that you didn't follow through on? Right? When God makes a promise, like it, it's a done deal. And he promises to those who love him the riches of faith. What a cool thing that is. James is reminding us of God's grace. He's reminding us of, of God's unmerited favor towards us, giving us things that we don't deserve and that we can't earn. We kind of struggle sometimes with this idea of grace because as Westerners, we, we like to earn the things that we have. Right? We don't like handouts. We don't like being given things for free. Have you ever been with a group of people, maybe out to dinner, and somebody offers to pay the bill? Like there, there's a, sometimes a downright fight that ensues over who's going to pay the bill, right? Because, because we don't like the idea of being given something that we haven't earned or that we don't deserve. I got dinner. No, 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 I got it. No, no, it's me. No, it's, I got it. Right? We, we do that. James is reminding us that, that God has graciously given us something that we don't deserve and that we can't earn. The riches of faith and heirs of his kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him. But here's where he brings it home. Verses 6 and 7. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Are, not, are they not the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? We, we dishonor the poor in this example because we have forgotten about the grace that we've received. We've forgotten about the grace that we received. And the result of forgetting about grace is that we dishonor, we're, we're ungracious when we forget about the grace that we've received from God. We become ungracious to those around us. He points out in this example that the rich are the ones who oppress. And what I don't think James is saying is that all rich people oppress everybody everywhere. I don't think he's saying that. He's drawing to a specific cultural moment that's happening within the church that these rich people that, that the Christian church is honoring are people who at the end of the day are not lined up with their beliefs. It would seem that the church in this case was cozying up to people who were treating them poorly and they were doing so because of the social status of those people. So imagine today if maybe a prominent person were to walk in the door, Let, let's say uh, maybe an elected official at a state or a national level were to walk in the door. Right? And, and we would cozy up to that person and, and give them a place of honor, but at the end of the day, maybe because of their policies, that, that they're, maybe they're not for uh, the religious freedoms that, that we so enjoy. 
So there's a disconnect there. This is kind of what's happening in this instance. And it seems that not only were the rich people treating Christians poorly here, but they were also coming out against Christ. And so there was a hypocrisy in the church cozying up and showing honor to these people that at the end of the day were against them. And they were doing so to achieve this social status. This is why James is drawing such a hard line here and calling this behavior evil. Because not only are we forgetting in in these instances the grace of God that we've received, that's been shown us, that's been given to us, that these people are cozying up with those who at the end of the day who are oppressively against them. And James is saying this is not compatible with the faith in Christ. To show honor in a way that honor is not necessarily due. And he reminds them of the name by which they were called the honorable name by which they were called. James is pointing out an issue here of identity. Think about our current cultural moment in politics, for example. I don't want to open a can of worms here, but but think about how evangelicals in general, like like the voting block of evangelicals, have cozied up to a party to, to achieve a status and to achieve power. This seems, seems like a noble thing. It seems like a noble thing to, to cozy up to certain values, like kind of the, the ends justify the means if, if we're going to promote certain values, right? James is pointing out here by reminding them of the honorable name by which they were called is that, that your identity does not ultimately come from a political allegiance. Our identity as Christians isn't tied to this party or that party. Our life on this earth as Christians is not tied to who sits in the big chair in the White House. As much as we would like that to be our guy, whoever your guy is or your party is, as much as we would like that to happen, James is reminding us is that we have an identity that's tied to the honorable name by which we were called, the name of Jesus Christ. Referencing back to Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that that the entire problem of sin in humanity, the entire problem of our brokenness, is that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And, And that we've cozied up to the creation over and above the Creator that we take created things and we place them over and above the Creator. That's the entire sin problem of humanity, the entire brokenness of humanity, is that we tie our identity to the wrong things. And in our cultural moment right now, evangelicals as as a group, we've tied our identity to the wrong things. And James is reminding us that you're called by an honorable name as a Christian, the name of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we can come into a room like this and, and, and if you're red and I'm blue, we, we can sit together and we can be friends and we can love each other and we can fellowship together. Because our identity is not in our redness or in our blueness. Our identity is in who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. What an incredible truth that is. And so on the surface here, James 
is dropping down a command, hey, don't, don't be partial, don't show favoritism, but there's so much more to it because there's an assumption of the gospel here. There's an assumption that James is making that, that we're all broken sinners in need of redemption, and so we have a level playing field. And if that's true, then it becomes silly to make distinctions like rich and poor, good and bad, attractive, unattractive, talented, untalented. Whatever distinctions you want to make, they become kind of silly in light of the gospel. And that's what James is reminding us of here in these few verses. And what an appropriate thing today that we get to do as we celebrate communion. Because it's our mutual allegiance to Christ that, that brings us together. Have you ever thought about, like when you come to fellowship, you might see somebody across the room and think, I, I wouldn't normally be friends with that person. And not in a negative sort of way, but, but just maybe because of your life and what it is, like maybe, maybe our paths just wouldn't cross outside of maybe in a, sitting like a, a situation like this. Right? Maybe we're into different things and we just don't relate. But the beauty, the beauty of the gospel is that it brings together people from all walks of life. All these distinctions that the world makes, like the rich and poor can fellowship together because of who Christ is. How cool is that? And so as we celebrate communion today, we, we remember who Christ is and what he's done for us. We remember that, that his body was broken for us. We remember that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I rich, poor, good, bad, attractive, unattractive, talented, unattalented, that we could become the righteousness of God. And so the playing field is, is level for all of us apart from Christ, and the playing field is level for all of us who are in Christ, regardless of how society might classify us. And so what a beautiful thing that is that we get to celebrate. And we celebrate communion corporately, not individually, because this is, this is a corporate reality. This is a reality for the church. And what a neat thing that is. So I'm going to pray for us. Kirk's going to come up and he's going to strum some music on the guitar. And you can get up um, and grab your communion elements, go back to your chair and just take them on your own. We, we won't do that together. You can just take them on your own. Uh, and then after that's done, we're going to close uh, and sing a song together. So let me pray for us. Father, we're so grateful for today. We're grateful for the truth of your word. We're grateful uh, that you love us, not because of us, but in spite of us. We're thankful that you have done for us things that we could and would never do for ourselves, that you have redeemed us from our brokenness and that you are redeeming us from our brokenness. And we're thankful that we have the hope that your promises are true, that one day you're going to make all of the wrong things right, and that one day we will be face to face with our Savior in heaven. We're thankful for that truth. We're thankful for today and pray that uh, the truth of your word and just the, the visible um, picture of the gospel as we take communion would sink into our hearts and that we would understand these things maybe in a way that we haven't previously understood. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.